0: Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Um, if you don't know who I am, my name is Matt. Um, Matt McVean, my wife, Sarah, here with me. I'm the pastor of, of a church plant that's just uh, maybe a year or so older, I think, than Refuge is. Uh, our church gathers on Sunday mornings in Beaver Creek, and then gathers throughout the weeks um, in Fairborn and Beaver Creek in Riverside and uh, in Oakley. So, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, uh, hope you all had a safe trip and didn't get stuck too many times. And it was fun as I was driving on 675, saw a big Dodge Ram going the other direction, and completely stuck, just couldn't make it up the hill. And I thought, why would you ever buy a truck without four-wheel drive? That doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, you have a $40,000 truck and you can't make it up the hill. <laughs> so, should have bought the shipping. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, if you have your Bibles, go with me to First Peter chapter two. John called me a few weeks ago and said, uh, I'm gonna preach at uh, Grace Church in Greenville and I was wondering if you would fill pulpit for me and and he said, By the way, it's like my two favorite verses in First Peter. Um, so your pastor gracious in giving up these verses. Uh, when you're preaching through a book and you it forces you to preach on many verses that uh, you maybe wouldn't preach on otherwise, but then you also look forward to those particular passages in a book um, that are really, uh, maybe precious to you, and I know that these verses, even before you all start going through 1 Peter, were precious to your pastor, and um, he speaks of these passages in this passage a lot, and uh, so before we jump in, I also want to say that you're... Pastor um, has been an encouragement to my heart, um, and he is—he is a blessing to you guys. Uh, he is a grace to you all. Him and his wife, Amy, and their family—he um, very indirectly has impacted Renovation Church in a large way. Um, these past couple years, three years since I've known uh, your pastor um, has changed my life a lot. So I just want to encourage you all that uh, that you have a pastor who loves God. Loves his word and uh just encourage you all to follow apart after him as y'all fall apart after God. Um he's a good guy. So his is sweet. So let's read. I'm going to actually read verses one through twelve just to set a little bit of context, uh, and then we're gonna go through just verses nine and ten. Uh, it's a little bit of a shift for me. We've been in Nehemiah now for a handful of weeks and at our church. So I get to jump into First Peter here, but I want to set a little bit of context, and I know y'all are used to me preaching, i only preaching here one at a time, but if you're taking notes, I'll try and help you with kind of some main points and things like that, so you have kind of some handles to grab a hold of the text and walk away with today, um, and then um, we'll, uh, we'll move forward. So let's read verses 1 through 12, and then we'll zero in on 9 and 10. Sorry, I just completely lost my spot. Uh, let's start in verse 4. As you have come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to God, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of fence. They stumble because they disobeyed the word, as they were destined to do. But you, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He says, beloved, I I urge you to sojourn and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Father, I ask for your graciousness in these next few moments, these next few moments. They are but brief moments inside of eternity. And yet, Father, you have done something, you have told us something that you have done and are doing in this passage that lasts for an eternity. So, Father, let us think briefly on these things, but think deeply on these things in these next few moments. And, Father, we give you the praise. Let it change us. that we glorify you in the days to come. To your sons, name. we pray. Amen. All right, I want to think for just a few moments about back in 9 and 10, He says this phrase, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. I want to think about this idea of excellencies for just a few moments. We, We all have excellencies that we proclaim. We all have things that we proclaim what is excellent about those things. I think we can discover what we proclaim to be excellent on a regular basis by probably what we find our pleasure in, or whatever we find to be satisfactory or to satisfy ourselves, our souls, our longings, or whatever we might find to be tasty and delightful, that which we find our hearts delighting in often. I think of uh, this part of town, I think of Tainai. nine is a very delightful place to eat. It's one of my favorite places to eat uh, is very delightful, and I often proclaim of its excellencies, because it's so good. The sushi is delicious, and I just eat chicken fried rice, and it's just very wonderful. Uh, but more so than even just food and locations of eating, but what do you find that you proclaim its excellencies? What is it that you find pleasure and satisfaction in? Another way to maybe tell that which we proclaim the excellencies of is maybe sometimes by the amounts of time that we devote to it. We think about our weeks and week in and week out and what kind of time we devote to this event or to this thing. And, and often that time, the thing that which we devote our time to, we probably will find ourselves proclaiming the excellencies of it as well. Maybe it's the amount of energy that we give to something or the money we spend on it or the communication we give to it. These often reveal to us the things that we proclaim the excellencies of. There are many different things that we proclaim the excellencies of. For some of us, I'm just going to give a couple examples. For some of us, we delight in our ability to set standards all around us and ensure that life reaches those standards. I know in this church you guys talk about control idols, and and affirmation idols, and source idols, and those kind of things, and for some of us we delight in our ability to control and to kind of set the standards around us and ensure that life reaches those, And, and then we scream of the excellencies of when that's accomplished. Our soul is delighted and our our life is satisfied we are taking great pleasure when we've been able to make things happen around us the way that we have decided they should be. And then we scream of how excellent it would be if those things would to be accomplished or were to be accomplished and indeed are not. For some of us we delight in the affirmation of others. We scream of the excellencies that that happen or that come about as we are affirmed by other people. We scream of how excellent we would be if we could have the affirmation that we believe we deserve that would come from other people. And the excellencies, I think, that he's speaking of in this passage also they reveal who you are and who I am. Whatever we are proclaiming the excellencies of says. Something about us. I want to talk a good bit today about this idea of being versus doing. Not sure if that's language y'all use here uh, at Refuge, or not, but I'm sure the concept is. But being uh, or doing comes from being. So who you are results in what comes out. And what comes out comes from who you are, and then our lens through which we view life is a part of our being. We think of our lens, I think sometimes as some abstract worldview concept, but worldview and our lens through which we view life is a part of who we are. And that impacts our doing. That which we think is excellent comes ultimately from our heart lens and our being and what we think we should be driving towards. I want you to see in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 14, I'm just going to reach back for just a moment. Look at verse 14 with me. He says this. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. I think this is key for us in understanding verses 9 and 10. Peter is saying that what you once were produced sinful passions. So so if you're looking at this path, your former ignorance. He's saying your ignorance. Now I'm understanding this ignorance to be a state of being. Not just a, a mental exercise that you just simply did not know these things, but I think what, what Peter means for us to see here is that this is a state of your existence. You were ignorant. You were a person of ignorance. And that this state of being, this ignorance, that from that you produced passions that proclaim the excellencies mentioned above. And those would be the hypocrisy and the deceit and the malice and the envy. And all the slander in the beginning of chapter 2. So he's saying you were once ignorant people. You were ignorant of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is ultimately what Peter's talking about here. Now I think Peter means more than simply an intellectual understanding of the gospel details. I don't think he just means when well, you were ignorant I mean you didn't know these details. So you should get to know these details and it will change your life. I think that's certainly part of it. But again, I think Peter means for us to understand this ignorance more as a state of being. That this is who you were. Our some being was different then. I think Peter is saying that you knew no gospel and you loved no gospel. You were a different person. That what we proclaimed as excellent is that which we are passionate about. And that which we are passionate about came from from our ignorance. It came from our being. Same thing today. Our passions come from our being. Our lens, or our worldview, if you will, was that of this world, not of Jesus Christ. It was ignorant of Jesus Christ. And our being and our worldview was that of this world, not in Christ. Our being and who we were was not in Christ, but in this world. I want to say this before we Really jump into this passage is that, now for those who are redeemed, those who are following Jesus' sin, you believe and repent and place your faith in Christ. But we're no longer ignorant of mind and heart concerning the gospel of Christ. And that's really what Peter is getting at in verses 9 and 10, and so much more than this, but at the least this. But Peter says, now you're something different. Now we are something different. If you have faith in Christ and, and repent of your sins and are walking with him, that you're a new creation, that you're a completely different person, still struggling, but a different person. If, he says you've been made into this person to do something glorious for a glorifying purpose. And that's really where we're going today. That you've been made into a person to do something glorious for a glorifying purpose. Peter means for us to understand what God has done to and for His people so that He would be praised for His excellencies. That we would live a life praising His excellencies. So my goal this morning, if you were to kind of write down a proposition would be this, to show you that you were given a new lens through which to view life that no matter the circumstances your life will proclaim the excellencies of God for the purpose of mission. And no matter what it is, no matter how life what life comes your way, at your lens through which you view it, would produce a life that proclaims His excellencies for the purpose of mission. I've got three three points. The first one is going to pertain to being, being an identity and who we are. The second and the third one is going to pertain to doing, what comes from that being. So the first thought I have for us this morning concerning our doing is that you were called out of darkness to be a new person. A new creation, something different than what you were, but you were called out of darkness to be a new person. You were called into his marvelous light. So if you look at verse nine and zero in here in chapter two, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. As we've been working through as a church through Nehemiah, at the very beginning, Nehemiah starts praying and he says, God, we are a corrupt people. We are an evil people. We have not repented. We have not lived life the way you've called us to be. And, and it was such a gracious thing to be reminded, as we were talking as a church in our in our house gathering or in home Bible study this past week. We were talking about the idea yeah, that we need to acknowledge sin, and acknowledge who we are, and acknowledge ourselves so that we can repent of that sin. And someone, and this is the grace of the body, someone says, yeah, and then we need to balance that because we're not just sinners, but we are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. We we are something different. God has done something to make something new. So I want to reach back, if you will, just back to Exodus, you know, back towards the beginning of the Bible, at Exodus chapter 19, verses four through six. If you have time you can turn there, otherwise Listen here, It he says this, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my, my what? My treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God speaking to Moses here. What we see is kind of like a sub-point, if you were were taking notes, that God's caused out of darkness to be a new person. And one of the things that we see where Peter's coming from, that Israel was brought out of slavery and bondage to be a display of God's glory among the nations. Now, we know that scripture kind of reveals the story in in increasing clarity. So we see this... God has delivered His people physically from physical bondage to be set free, to be His people, now to live for Him. Israel was rescued. And then following this point, following this point in Exodus 19, comes the law, comes the regulations. All of this to show ultimately God's redemptive power. Now, what happens, because God has redeemed His people, the redemption is not them obeying the law, the redemption is God rescuing them from Egypt. And so now, in response to God's salvific work, or God's salvation, God's rescuing His people from Egypt, now the people in response would become a holy nation. And God has chosen them to be a holy nation. And God's display of His glory would be through these people to the nations. The law, the rules, the directions, the guidance was all meant to set Israel apart. They were to view the world through different lenses. They were to see things differently than the rest of the world would see them. They would have a different worldview, to use a popular term today. For example, when there was no food, they were not to despair make sacrifices to stone images, but they were to trust God's provision. You see this over and over and over again. When there was evil, another example, when there was evil committed against another person, there was to be justice issued. There was not to be this free-for-all, we could do whatever we wanted. They were to care for their neighbors. They were to care for each other. That's when the world, another example, when the world was filled with hope and various gods, they were to worship the one true God. Again, to set them apart from the rest of the world in the polytheistic society that they were in. When the world worked seven days a week, another example, when they worked seven days a week to secure their future as if they could, God's people showed their trust in God's provision by resting. Seen even more so in the seventh year of rest that they were supposed to do. To let the land go for an entire year. So God's people were rescued out of darkness, out of slavery, out of bondage, to be a new people, to view life differently, to be set apart, ultimately to display God's glory among the nations. And Peter is helping us understand here that the greater reality of Exodus was not physical bondage and then subsequent rescue, but heart bondage, sin bondage bondage, worship of idol, bondage, and then subsequent rescue. That this is what this is pointing to. God is, again, increasingly with greater clarity showing us this picture, and Peter means for us to see the connection today in 1 Peter chapter 2. With all that said, Peter is saying to us, and if you were taking it as a sub-point here, we have been set apart to be a light to the nations. We've been set apart to be a light the nations. So you see already in First Peter, I'm sure John's picked up on this with you guys, but there's this theme of being set apart. You were once ignorant of faith, and now you've been rescued. God has redeemed you. You are now something completely different than you once were. You once were a slave to unrighteousness. Now we are slaves to righteousness. Whereas you were difference. You have a different lens to which you lie. Peter is making a declaration at this point of identity change. You are a different people. You're not those people that you want to and So if we are to walk through, what does this identity change look like? He says that you are a chosen race. I wish we had time to really dive into what each one of these means. And I, I pray that you'll Maybe do that later this week, but a chosen race. You're no longer of Adam's race, but you are a new race in Christ. You're no longer a part of the seed of man, but you're the seed of, or seed of the serpent, but now you're a seed of the woman. You're a seed of Christ. You're now a new person. Now during the time of the writing of this letter, the Christians were increasingly living like a totally different race of people. Like, literally, the culture was beginning to view them as, like, well, they're just set, they are set apart. The culture viewed this often as bad, I man. Think about the culture this time. Families were often broken apart. Businesses were ruined. If you didn't have people coming to buy their sin, then that business had to close. Well, any culture that thrives on those kind of businesses isn't going to like that. Pagan religious rituals were avoided. They weren't the participation that they had before, but it's interesting because paradoxically it was this new race that won over the masses. It was this new race of people that was beginning to infect the culture in a very powerful way. Their suffering caused by their new lenses set them apart. They were a different people. And he said, you're a royal priesthood. Peter is telling us that we are both royal and priestly now. I'm just thinking that this past week as I reflect on my own life and a lot these words and thought, do I live as royalty? Not in a financial, lavish way. Do I live stately, honorably? Do I live as a priest now? Both Understanding Christ is my high priest. And he says, we are these things I now. Mean, you are a royal priesthood. Peter has in mind here the theme of, again, of obedience and holiness. The ancient priesthood was to be sanctified and set apart even from the people. From the rest of Israel, they were to be set apart. And he's saying that you are all now a royal priesthood. And then the royal idea here, I think, would impress upon us the thought that God is our king and we owe him our allegiance. We are not our own kings. You can be surprised to look at your own life and think of the throne of which you tried to reign from. This is a different position that we hold. We are not kings. God is our king. Then as his royal priests, we are set apart for purity and a purpose demanded by God. And thirdly, he says, we're a holy nation. He says, we're a holy nation. I think the idea here again is a group of people that are set apart from the world. I think Peter's just continuing this theme through this verse. We are a holy nation, but not holy because of our doing, but holiness derived from the holy king of this nation. Our holiness does not come from us, it comes from him. And then he says, we are God's people. It says, we are receivers of mercy. Look at verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You're God's people, and God's people have received mercy. I would encourage you this week to go back and read Hosea, particularly Hosea chapter 2. is where Peter is getting this thought from. God speaks of a time when his royal priesthood and holy nation would be restored after the people's egregious failure to keep the covenant with him. So they would sin, they would not keep the covenant, and God would restore them. And God spoke through Hosea saying that there would be a time when by unmerited love and mercy, God would again gather a people for his special possession. That it wouldn't be because of what the people were doing, but it would be because of his love and mercy. So Peter certainly has in mind here not, not a people that deserved mercy, but yet a people who still received mercy. A people that did not deserve to be God's people, but yet God has made them his people. So even think of the picture in lesser clarity back in Exodus when the Israelites leave and, and then multiple times as they're journeying through the wilderness towards Mount Sinai and on towards the promised land, things are said like, we, Moses, wanted did you be us out here? We would be better off chat. We would be better off those kind of people, not these kind of people. So I don't, I was thinking, I don't know if you're a follower of Christ or not, but I wanted to ask you this question. If you're not sure, do you understand that your lens through which you lie is a dangerous lens? And God is not asking you to, on your own, to become these things. To become a chosen race. You cannot do that. I cannot do that. We cannot do that. But He is commanding us to repent and exercise faith in the work of His Son. That's how God uses what God does to to make us in a chosen race from the Holy Priest. Let us repent of our sin, place our faith in Christ and His work as paying the price for our sin. See, Jesus was the first of the chosen race. He was the first of this royal priesthood. And it's by our repentance, or by repentance of our sin and faith and his payment on the cross that God makes us his people. So Peter is saying you step back out to the larger crowd. So Peter is saying, we are no longer these people ignorant of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are now God's chosen people. You have been rescued. Our identity has been changed. We now have a new lens. We now have different way in which we see the world. Not like putting on glasses, but as in new eyes, new hearts through which you view this world. And so, if you consider yourself a follower of Christ, I was asking this question, has your lens really changed? Is your lens changing? Because see, it's interesting, at the beginning of chapter 2, he says you're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. So there's a sense in which it's done that you are a chosen race, and then there's a sense in which we're still fleshing this out, still working this out. And so, has your lens changed? Has your lens Changing. And I find lots of Christians, truly redeemed people, still operating with their old world view, still viewing life as one who is ignorant of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I find people, I've been Christians long time, I've been Christians for a long time, still operating with old world views. <coughs> You seeking, as we talk about in our church, seeking God's vision for the good life. What is God's vision for your life? Because God's vision for your life is God's vision for a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people that have received mercy. God's vision is for those people. God's vision is not for those other people. I mean, God has a vision for them as well. But God has a vision for His people. And our responsibility is to know that vision from His Word. Now, we've talked about this idea of being, and we're a different people. We're a chosen race, a so holy nation, a royal priesthood. But for what purpose were we called out of this darkness and into marvelous life? And this, this brings us back to what I started off with. And as we were called out of darkness to proclaim how excellent God is. Does your life proclaim how excellent God is? Just think about that for a moment. Yesterday, this morning, conversation with your spouse, conversation with your kids, how about your co workers? You realize that God called you out of darkness for a purpose, and that was to proclaim how excellent He is. You realize you get to proclaim how excellent He is, right? You get to. That the excellencies we proclaim are the same as the world. Then to which God does our light point? Where are we telling the world the magnificent light comes from? Not from God. First Peter 2.9 He says this, after royal priesthood, holy nation, people for his own possession, that you, will, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So it's really about this idea of, of proclaiming how excellent God is. We can't overlook the theme, this big theme maybe Peter, First uh, Peter, of suffering. Suffering is a major theme in this book. We don't want to overlook the fact that this proclaiming of excellencies, brought about by these new lenses and change in our identity, is in the context of suffering. Now, suffering acts as both a refining tool, but also as a means to bring about the proclamation of His excellencies. Now, just like the Israelites, one of God's primary means of bringing forth the fruit of holiness was through suffering. And just like in Jesus, the same thing. In Hebrews 5, 8, says, although He was a son, speaking of Christ, He learned obedience through what He suffered. Same with His people. We too learn obedience. We too learn how to live out who we are now in Christ through suffering. You know, I have three little boys, uh, you know, is four. And God gave me this illustration on the way to church this morning. Uh, I typically drive separately uh, to go to church. I had to go to church much earlier. And I have forgotten what it means to. Corral three little boys and get them in the car together and drive to church and try to maintain some level of worshipfulness. Uh, and the uh, boys are fussing and you know and all this craziness. I mean, probably in the past like three years, I've probably only driven to church with my family. Uh, maybe once or twice. Maybe this was the second time. So I forgot this. And I'm I driving down 35, you are going to get off the highway, and I, and I say to my wife, I said, I've been missing out on some wonderful sanctification uh, on Sunday mornings. Uh, I desperately need it. Uh, and I thank God for his grace to help me see it that way. This is after I probably have sinned multiple times prior to this, this morning. And uh, I don't mean to equate that you know, one for one with suffering, but there is a sense in which that things were not the way I liked them to be, and and a minimal level of suffering, and God said, no, "No, no, this is for your good." You know, when we suffer, our passions are challenged, our passions are challenged, our delights are pushed, and our pleasures are squeezed. We say certain things are excellent, we proclaim the excellencies of certain things, then when suffering comes along, we are challenged in those beliefs. We say to the world that the most excellent thing we have is our family. I'm going to spend all my time and energy in my family so that I can proclaim the excellencies of my family, the kingdom in which I reign, whether I'm mom or dad or whoever. We proclaim that He is excellent, or that our families are excellent, that my leading my family is excellent, not God. And then when suffering comes along and only God can sustain you and me, you realize that you've been proclaiming them all. Excellencies. Your family's not going to get you through that. God can. Now your family plays a role in that. But it's ultimately God whose excellencies are worthy of proclaiming. Another example, we say to the world, the most excellent thing we have is our financial security when I can have that job or when, when I spend my money this way, then when suffering, maybe illness comes along and only God can get you through, not your money, you realize that you've been proclaiming the wrong excellencies. Your family, your money, I you our, our friends will take this and think through maybe other examples this week, but your money and your family does not have excellencies worth proclaiming as that of God. God has excellencies worthy. So suffering is a major theme in the book of 1 Peter God means for our suffering to produce a proclamation of His excellencies As we live through those in a way totally different than the world So as we think about suffering, we do not suffer as the world suffers We suffer a different way Because we are different people We view things differently Isaiah 43, 21 says that these people whom I formed for myself that they may declare my praise. God is forming us. God has formed us and is forming us in such a way to declare his praise. So as he, as he orchestrates suffering in our lives, if we suffer rightly, then we are suffering to his praise and we are suffering in a way that sets us apart from the world. We must not suffer as the world suffers to be sure of this. We must not have the same limbs that the world uses; otherwise, we'll proclaim the same excellencies as the world does. How does the world often deal with suffering? Maybe it's by drowning their sorrows in TV, right? Just soak it in the TV for two, three, four hours a night. I'm just going to, I just gonna forget my world, venture off into another world, and I then tomorrow I'll just deal with myself. Or maybe, maybe it's by spending money. You know, the world spends money to secure comfort and to avoid suffering. Are you spending God's money to avoid the suffering that God has ordained for you? When we suffer, though, we must view it through the lens of, for example, a royal priest. So we think about this identity change. How then do we view, through our identity, these different, made a different, oh, I'm sorry, when it comes to suffering, how do we view suffering through these different, this lens that God has now given us? So we think about this, the first one is in terms of like a royal priest. What does it mean to view suffering through the lens of a royal priest? First of all, our king is sovereign over the suffering, and he is in control. If we are royalty, and our God is king, then he is sovereign over this suffering. He is in control. It is a decree from his throne. Is concerned, you think about being a priest. The priest is concerned with, with the sufferer and the sovereign over the suffering. So a priest cares for the heart of the person suffering and its relationship to the deity or to the, the sovereign over that. So a priest, think about that, not just when we think of caring, we often think of, well, oh yeah, well, I have concern for that. Knowing of you, by priest, and caring is, how are you caring for that heart, your heart, in that suffering? It's, your heart is not just an object to numb in order to get through the suffering. It's an object that can change. It needs to be molded, sanctified, as you go through the suffering. When a Christian suffers, and yet trusts God's kingship, His excellencies are proclaimed. What do you proclaim to the world when you trust God through suffering? You proclaim that He is trustworthy, He is good, that He will see you through. That this is not a surprise to God. So the next is to think about when we suffer, we must view it through the lens of the Holy Nation. Our Creator has set us apart corporately, He has set us apart as a nation. I heard you guys use the word, like, family. We're a family. I heard Alex say that this morning. We're a family. We're a holy nation. And I think an implication of this holy nation is the idea of corporate suffering. When we suffer, we do not suffer as isolated people, but we suffer together, bearing each other's burdens. We are many parts, but parts of the same body. So how do you do suffering? The idea of this is a holy nation. We are a nation as holy instead of part. Next, we, when we suffer, we must view it through the lens of those who have received mercy. When you're suffering, I'm not saying it's wrong to ask God for mercy. But when you're suffering, do you suffer thinking about the idea of the mercy that you have already received? I think you'll find that your suffering on this side of life... And the mercy you want from that is is a legit thing. We can ask for that mercy, but but think about that mercy in light of the mercy that you've been granted that will impact you for all eternity. The mercy for the payment of your sins. We've already granted mercy for the sins we've committed. What can a suffering on this side of eternity do to us? Take our life? Cause physical pain? I mean, all those things stay, I got that, and I, I would like to avoid those as well, but how does this compare to the granting of mercy concerning the eternal wrath of God poured out on you for all of your sins? Now that's a mercy that I want. But how might we be suffering differently in the world since we receive mercy for something so much greater than the temporary suffering of this world? You got how that sets us apart? I've just given just a handful of examples of how, within the theme of suffering, that we then view it through our lens as royal priesthood, holy nation. So many more implications and applications for this figure of life. You see, when we view suffering through the lens of our new identity, we will suffer in a way distinctly different than the world. In doing so, we proclaim the excellencies of our God. We're not getting through the suffering on our strength, trust in ourselves, magic we have worked. We're able to live in such a way that no matter the circumstances in life, we have lenses through which to view life that set us apart as we proclaim the excellencies of God, no matter what. We are living through the suffering by the mighty power and grace of our God. He is excellent in this. And we are simply saying to the world that He is excellent. That my ability to change the situation, my ability just to get through the suffering, is not excellent. But God is excellent. And even think beyond suffering. How does your life proclaim the excellencies of God? As a royal priest of a holy nation. Alright. So God changed our identity so that we would live in such a way that is starkly different from the world. We have been changed so that we might proclaim the excellencies of God who has rescued us. Now for what purpose? Why would God change a people to be like this? For what reason would he do this? So you say, of course, right? So that God gets the glory. I agree. But for God to get glory, how? Again, my goal, I want to remind you this morning, is to show you that you were given a glimpse through which, to matter the circumstances, that your life will proclaim the excellencies of God for the purpose of mission. You were called out of darkness for the purpose of mission. I hope I don't make John too upset here, but I want to reach into verse 12 for just a brief moment. Uh, he says this in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Why are they doing all of these things? Or why is he saying to live this way in lie of who you are, to proclaim his excellencies? And so that they may see your good deeds. That the Gentiles, that the nations, that the lost would see your good deeds and glorify God. So These good deeds, the excellencies that your deeds are proclaiming are the right excellencies. These are all lining up with those who are a chosen race and a holy, a royal priesthood and a holy nation. That way you, that way when you live, you live in such a way that would be pointing them to the God of the heavens, not the same gods that our world worships. And he says that they may then glorify God. How will these lives glorify God? These people who are seeing these excellencies, how might they glorify God? It would be by their lives proclaiming the same excellencies. But when our excellencies that we proclaim look no different than the world's, then how are they going to glorify God? Well, they can't. We're not. But by their lives proclaiming His excellency. By the whole world being filled with people who love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And loving their neighbors as themselves. That just is a very baseline. What it looks like to live in such a way to proclaim His excellency. So the way we think about things. The lens of our heart. The identity we have in Christ changes the way we live. This is our apologetic, if you will. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, being, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. We live the way we do because of the identity change brought forth by God's work in our lives. What is it that brings validity to our belief claims? I would say the distinctiveness of our lives, the set apartness of our Culture, family. Ever thought about why there's little to no reformation of people's lives, maybe happening around us sometimes? At least because oftentimes we're proclaiming the same excellencies that they are. My job, I proclaim its excellency. Just like they do. My little kingdom, our lives are oftentimes so similar similar to the world around us that we have no apologetics for our truth claims. We have, our worldview is the same. So as I kind of wrap this up, land the plane here, what excellencies are you proclaiming? Think about this for a moment. Maybe your busy schedule, your education, your financial earning, your toddler, your home. Are these things that, that you put all your time into so that you can proclaim its excellencies? And what I've found in my life is I try to proclaim the excellencies of these things. When really what I was trying to do is proclaim my excellency displayed in these things. Guys, one who is ignorant of Christ can proclaim the excellencies of these things. That makes us no so different. Let me give you a couple examples real quick of living in a way that proclaims God's excellencies. So sure, we will suffer. But we don't suffer as ones without hope. We suffer as world priests who have a king sovereign over the suffering. Sure, we have to care financially for our home and for our family, but that doesn't mean we work so much that we neglect other godly callings and responsibilities. Instead, we work as ones who trust in the provision of their God as a chosen people. See, Israel was called to be God's royal priesthood, his holy nation. But they failed. We failed this too. We failed at being God's chosen race. We get wrapped up in proclaiming our excellencies and securing the throne that we reign from. Ultimately, God's call though on Israel to be this royal priesthood and this holy nation, this chosen people, was fulfilled in Jesus. Amen. It was ultimately fulfilled in Christ. He was God's faithful priest. He was God's true king. He was God's holy nation. He is these things to this day. Then those who are united with Christ by faith become in Him a royal priesthood, a part of God's chosen race, His holy nation, ones who have received mercy. By His grace, we do not proclaim the excellencies of ourselves any longer. We are not slaves to fighting and battling and warring with life so that we can secure our excellencies. We don't have to do that By His grace, we view all of life through the new lenses that God has given us so that we, in turn, live in such a way that we proclaim His excellencies for the purpose of missions that the nations would glorify God. That's how we, we proclaim His excellencies. Let I me mean, encourage you this week to think through where, what excellencies am I proclaiming instead of proclaiming God's excellencies. And then seek to believe and know why God's excellencies are worth proclaiming way more than ours. And the other things that we seek to proclaim excellencies Let's oh, pray. That's the way to come forward. Thank you that we are no longer slaves to our sin and slaves to unrighteousness, but we are now indeed a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a father. But we are now a people who receive mercy. We were once a people who did not deserve mercy and had not received mercy We are still a people who do not deserve mercy. And yet we are a people who have received mercy. So Father, pray as we worship in these next few moments. That that we would see that our mercy was earned in your son Jesus. That our new identity was lived and earned by your son Jesus. And in Him we are these people. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That we are Your people. You reign over us. You are our King. Your Son Jesus is our High Priest. So Father, I pray that You would do this thing in Your people. Father, I love You. In Jesus' name.